This afternoon, we are starting a new series. We're looking at the book of Colossians, particularly Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at this for the next three weeks. We're going to be mining it, really, for Paul's counsel, his teaching to this relatively young church in the city of Colossae, which is in Central Asia. Now, in order to understand this book, I think we need to understand something of the context um, that Paul is writing to. Now, Colossae is a Roman city, has a little bit of a a Jewish population, um, almost certainly. And it's got a number of different spiritual voices, different um, voices really about who God is, and also uh, different uh, teachers really promoting different ideas, different religious practices to, and and actually some of those religious practices are starting to to influence the church. So, So Paul's writing this letter really to address some of the Um, ideas, some of the different competing um, ideas both about who God is and also different ideas about how to worship God. For example, um, some people are promoting the worship of angels, others are promoting a kind of spiritual asceticism, a kind of self-denial in order to be able to meet with God. So Paul is directly responding to some of these false teachers. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2 verse 4 he says, I say this so, so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What he's saying is Look, their arguments may sound plausible, but I don't want you to be deluded by them. I don't want you to be pulled away by these arguments from your faith in Christ. Now, actually, if you think about it, our context is rather similar to this. We live in a city with a number of different competing voices, different ideas. We live in a a pluralistic city with lots of different ideas about who God is and how to worship him. In fact, we even have some different ideas within um, the community of those people who would Uh, attach the label of Christian to themselves. Indeed, we would say that we also have something of these false teachers, people who are, um, maybe who would attach the label of Christian to themselves, but actually if you dig beneath the surface, you'll see that either they're promoting a very different understanding about who Jesus is, people like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, or those who might claim to be Christians or or claim to be promoting the gospel, but actually um, when when you dig beneath the surface, they're promoting a very different lifestyle, which is really anti-ethical, really opposed to that of the New Testament. So when you consider our context and you consider the pluralistic context that we're in, the question which I think is beholden on us to ask, as it was for Paul, really, is what is the reality? What is genuine faith and what is counterfeit? And as Bible-believing Christians, we want to, to look at the Bible and say, what's the biblical answer to that question? What's the We believe it's the authentic revelation of God. We believe it's the word of God. And so we want to say, what's the the biblical reality of who God is and how to worship him? And that's why we've titled this series, Authentic Faith. We want to say, what is the essence of the Christian faith, according to Paul? And what does it look like in the life of those who follow Jesus? And we're going to see as we look through chapter one, Paul lays out something of the foundation stones, the essence of the Christian faith. And so um, why don't you turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me. I'm going to read the beginning of Colossians chapter 1, and then I'm going to pray for us. Uh, You'll find it if you have a church Bible on page 1,715. So I'm going to read out uh, verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth, that you have indeed delivered us from the domain of darkness. You've brought us into this wonderful place where we have the freedom to be able to worship you, that you've united us with yourself. You've brought us into a living relationship with you, Lord. As, you, as we come together this afternoon, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. You pray that you would shape us, that you would lead us in what it looks like to live a fruitful and mature life in Christ. By your grace, amen. Amen. So, so as you read the beginning of the letter that uh, Paul has to the Colossian church, there's something of a narrative that emerges. We've heard of this man called Epaphras, who was probably an associate of Paul, probably came to faith in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away from uh, Colossae. And then um, Epaphras is actually a native of Colossae, so he's kind of gone back to his own people, and he's brought the gospel to them. Some of them have come to believe in Christ, and then uh, Epaphras essentially planted a church there. He spent some time teaching them. And then he's gone back to Paul, really to, to tell, tell Paul all about what God's been doing in Colossae while Epaphras has been there. And then Paul has, has sent this letter back to the Colossians, really as a combination of encouragement and also to kind of uh, shape what God is doing there, to be able to provide for them a framework and understanding of how to grow up in Christ. And actually, the beginning, the passage we've just read, Paul's really starting with a prayer. He's starting with a prayer to, to give thanks to God for what God has done. But he's also praying that the, that the work of God would continue in the lives of the Colossians. And actually, his first cause for thanksgiving is that the Colossians have found faith. That's the, the bedrock, really, of why Paul's writing them to them in the first place. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The Colossians have come to believe in Christ. They they've presumably recognize that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and they've come to believe in him, come to trust in him, come to uh, believe that by his death on the cross that they can be forgiven, that they are headed for eternal life. They've got a hope laid up for them in heaven, in verse 4. They've come to receive this forgiveness. They've believed the gospel. But Paul doesn't want God's work to stop there. Paul is not uh, satisfied just that they've come to believe in Christ. Actually, Paul is praying that the gospel would continue to bear fruit in the Colossians' lives. You can see this theme of bearing fruit a couple of times. One, in verse 5 and 6, when he said, "Um, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit. 
So the gospel, the core, essential doctrine of faith, has been preached to them, and it's borne fruit in their lives. But actually, Paul doesn't want it to stop there. In verse 10, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in knowledge of God. So Paul wants the gospel to continue to bear fruit in the Colossians' lives. What does he mean by bearing fruit? Well, I don't think he's talking about a physical kind of fruit. Obviously, he's talking about a spiritual kind of fruit. And it's really a picture of growth. It's it's describing the formation of Christian character, of the fact that Christians' lives will look different. Actually, as the gospel um, comes to them, it bears fruit. Their lifestyle will be changed. They'll start to behave in a different way. Their lives are changed as a result of believing the gospel. Really, one of the underlying assumptions that Paul has as he prays for the Colossians is the the gospel will not leave you as you are. That you cannot believe the gospel and be unchanged. It must change your life. Really, what Paul is arguing implicitly is against something like nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity literally means kind of Christianity in name only. And actually, this is very true if we look at the history of Christianity in this country, that this was something that was really rather prevalent. There'd be lots of people who might, may, might call themselves Christians, may even go to church, but actually, in reality, it had no impact on their lives. Uh, think about a, a biography of a man, um, Frank McCaw, his autobiography, Angela's Ashes. He describes growing up in rural Ireland in real poverty, and uh, he describes really uh, rank hypocrisy that these guys would go to... Uh, so Irish guys were going out, getting drunk, beating their wives on Saturday night, and then going to mass on the Sunday. And he sees that hypocrisy, and it leads him to question, really, that there can be no truth in what he's encountered. He's saying, look, this, is, this can't be real if you look at the hypocrisy that these guys are living with. And so Paul would actually agree with him, in a way, and say, actually, the Christianity that those guys are living isn't real. If it doesn't change your life, then your Christianity isn't real. Of course... The question then remains, the question we need to answer is, if we're saying that the gospel must change your life, how will the gospel change you? How should Christians look different? And really, I think in Paul's prayers in this passage, we're getting something of a blueprint, something of a a picture of what the Christian life should look like. But, But really, what are the essential ingredients to Christian maturity? And that's why I want to look at today authentic maturity, saying, and really what I think Paul is, is showing us when you, when you boil down his prayers, I think there are three essential building blocks, three um, almost natural outworkings of the gospel. I'm not saying that these are things that you need to have in order to be saved, but I'm saying that if you are indeed saved, if, if Jesus has come to reign in your life, that you've been born again, that actually these three things will be true of you. They should be true of your life. And so I want to work through these three different aspects, three pillars, really, of Christian maturity, three outworkings of the gospel in your life. Now, I think this will be relevant for a few few different groups of you. First of all, if you're not a Christian, if you're outside, on the outside looking into Christianity, then in a way, I think there are many misconceptions people have about what the Christian life really looks like. You know, maybe they think being a Christian means um, certain, I would argue, non-biblical, certain... uh, aspects of devotion, you know, whether it means eating fish on Fridays or certain holy days of obligation. There's all sorts of different um, paraphernalia, different things that people have attached and said, this is what it means to be an authentic Christian. 
And actually, as you look at it, you'll see that actually many of those don't bear any truth in the New Testament. Or maybe you just think actually being a Christian means really being really nice. I don't know if you've ever seen the Armstrong and Miller sketch. You've uh, heard of the Alpha course. It's a course for exploring the Christian faith. And Armstrong and Miller, two uh, comedians on the BBC, uh, do this great sketch where, they, where, they, where a non-Christian, actually I think it's some vampires, go to an Alpha course. And, um, and, and, you know, the Christians are just like unbelievably saccharine sweet. You know, they're like, oh, hi, nice to see you. And, and I think that's kind of one of the popular kind of expectations, really, that becoming a Christian means being really nice, if that makes sense. And... And I think that's, um, again, we want to look at that, really examine that and say, what does the actual biblical testimony say? What does it actually mean to be a Christian? What does it look like in your life? If you are a Christian, I think this is absolutely essential that you listen into this because it's essential that our faith really follows something of a biblical framework. As we're thinking, we all want to be mature in Christ. We want to grow up in our faith. We want to say, what is the blueprint for that? What is the, in a sense, we want our faith to be authentic, but we want to, we don't want to be unbalanced Think about, um, you know, it's true that throughout the ages in Christian history that Christians have had blind spots. Think about Martin Luther, who's a profound theological thinker who uh, really pioneered the idea of faith by grace alone. But he was also virulently anti-Semitic. Think about John Wesley, who, who brought the gospel, one of the guys who pioneered bringing the gospel to Britain. But he had a terrible marriage. It's true that throughout history, Christians have had blind spots. And so it's important that we examine our own life. As you hear these these three essentials, these three outworkings of the gospel in your life, and say, actually, have I become unbalanced? Uh, Actually, is my my, um, picture of Christian maturity actually out of kilter with the, the biblical picture? So I want you to hear these truths, and I want you to really ask yourself, is this true of my life? So I want to take you through three hallmarks, three marks of authenticity. And the first hallmark I want to show you is love for all the saints. Love for all the saints. The first defining feature, the first hallmark, the first essential that Paul recognizes in the Colossians, the real, the mark that really that their faith is genuine, is that they have love for other Christians. This is actually the basis by, by which Paul is able to say that this is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. This is the basis by which he's able to thank God that the gospel has, has resonated, has penetrated into these Colossian Christians' hearts. Verse 3 and 4, he said, um, We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. He's saying that love that they have is something of an authenticating mark. It's what tells him their faith is genuine. He's so uh, focused on this that he then goes on to repeat it in verse 8. He says, talking about Epaphras, that he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Actually, John uh, the Apostle makes a very similar point in 1 John uh, chapter 3. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. What he's saying is actually, I can, t- I can say with sureness that I have been saved because I can see love for my brothers and sisters. He's saying, actually, I can see by my behavior, by my attitude, that we love the brothers and sisters, that we love our fellow Christians. And so I can see that God has done a work in my heart. I can see that he has saved me, that I've been born again. So why is Paul and why does John draw such an indelible link between believing the gospel and love for the saints? Why are those two so connected for them? Well, in one sense, I think it's just the natural outworking of the gospel. 
to love the saints. That actually as you understand, as you uh, imbibe and as this truth that God so loved the world that he was willing to send his son to die for you, when you understand that truth, it is only the natural outworking from that that you would then love your fellow Christians. That would change the way you relate to others. The gospel speaks to and shapes our affections. Think about 1 John uh, chapter 4. It says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Put it another way. If you've been born of God, if you know God, if you claim to be someone who knows God, then actually it absolutely should make you someone who loves others. Now, I'm not saying that you won't ever get angry with other believers. I'm not saying that you won't ever allow a root of bitterness to come up and to to change your attitude towards your, your brothers and sisters, your family in Christ. But I am saying that the gospel should change the way you relate to other Christians. And this is why I think Jesus draws such a link between his love and the love between the disciples. In John chapter 13, uh, Jesus gives the disciples another command. He says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He's saying, actually, that the love that they have for one another will speak of the love that he has for them. In some way, that actually, as people see the love that we have as the body of Christ, Actually, that speaks to the fact that we are people who've encountered this incredible love in Christ. Actually, when you understand this expectation, this assumption that Paul has that, that Christians will love one another, suddenly, so much of the, the New Testament, so many of the, the New Testament commands about how the church should operate suddenly make sense. In fact, I think you'll see that actually the, the commands for the way the, new te- uh, the, way the church should, should operate in the New Testament don't make sense without this assumption. Think about Acts chapter 2 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The instruction that Christians would get, or the the description that these Christians are gathering in the temple daily. Well, think about the idea of gathering together daily with people you don't like. It's just not going to happen. After a while, you just think "This this is really not very fun. Actually, it's only plausible if you actually love the people you're gathering with. Think about the idea that... um that they're sharing their possessions, they're selling, their, selling what they have and sharing with those who are in need among them. Again, that's just a complete pipe dream. That's not, it's completely implausible unless the saints love one another. It only makes sense that they would do that because they love one another. Think about in uh, chapter 2, uh, sorry, uh, the second book of Timothy, when Paul instructs Timothy to rebuke some of his church. Think about rebuke. Rebuke really is just challenging someone. Um, And actually, the idea that challenging someone would bring fruit in their life, I would argue, only really works if that person knows that you love them. If you challenge someone you don't know, or maybe you challenge someone and and, and they think, oh, you don't really love me. Actually, it has the counter, it has the kind of opposite effect that you desire. Actually, they'll probably most likely say, well, screw you and just ignore what you're saying. Actually, the the whole assumption that that we would rebuke one another, that we would challenge each other, assumes that we love each other, that we're willing to hear what the other one says because we say, no, this person loves me. So actually, so many of our instructions, so much of the biblical pattern for how we should operate as the church assumes, it presupposes that we love one another. Now, I suspect that some, uh, uh, some of you hear this instruction to love one another I suspect some of you will say, well, yeah, I've got this down. I, you know, I, I, I've got friends at church. 
I don't have issue with anyone here. Actually, I'm, I'm doing quite well at loving my brothers and sisters. Well, I want to suggest to you that Paul's expectation for love towards the saints is actually much greater than we realize. First of all, I think the love that he describes is more tangible than, than, our, than our kind of expectation of what love is in, in 21st century London. Typically, when we think of love, we think of a feeling. We think, you know, I love that chocolate bar, I love that TV program. We're describing our affections. So when we talk about loving the saints, most of us think really what that means is having positive feelings towards our brothers and sisters. Think, oh, you know, I I love that guy. He's really great. And don't get me wrong. I think, of course, love will include that kind of affection that we have for one another. But I think it's more than that. The love that Paul is describing here is tangible. Think about it. How could Epaphras tell Paul that they love one another if there was nothing to show for it? He's unlikely to be saying, you know, those guys, they really feel warm and fuzzy feelings towards other Christians. Because it's very hard to see that. The fact that Epaphras is describing that love in the first place means it has to be tangible. In some way, there has to be the fruit of that love in their lives. Elsewhere, we see that the Christian understanding of love is much more than feelings. In 1 John, um, John defines it really looking at Jesus' example. Bear with me. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Which is Christians, our understanding of what love is has been fundamentally redefined by the cross. That actually love is not uh, just a feeling, but an action. An action of profound sacrifice, as we see on the cross. And so, in the same way, our pattern of loving one another is, of course, a practical one, a tangible one. Uh, one that is, that is lived out in our lives. Think about whoever uh, someone was offering beds this morning on WhatsApp or, you know, all sorts of different tangible outworkings of this kind of love will be present in the body of Christ. And actually, that's something that Paul is expecting, is expecting that their hearts have been changed and they're going to be tangibly loving one another. The second way I think Paul's expectation of love is different to ours is when he describes the love that they have for all the saints, for all the saints. See, I think the love he describes is more than just friendship with a few people at church. Don't get me wrong. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I want that for each of you at church. I want you to have deep relationships where you're sharing your life and you're people who you're vulnerable with. I think that's absolutely fantastic. But I think he's describing a kind of love that is more than just friendship with a few people. Actually, he's talking about a fundamentally profound commitment to, what, to, to all your brothers and sisters. And I don't mean all in the sense of, you know, therefore you need to be going and visiting all the people in church and trying to be friends with everyone, but rather a, an, a kind of commitment to those who perhaps are different to you. Actually, this kind of love transcends the typical boundaries that we put up around ourselves. Actually, what Paul's envisaging here is a love that um, breaks down the traditional barriers of class, of race, of nationhood. And actually, in a way, what I think he's describing is the kind of love that someone would come into the church and say, this is profoundly unnatural. Actually, there are people here who, in any other context, wouldn't be friends, wouldn't be in relationship with each other. There's too many barriers. There's too many differences between them. Actually, this, 
This doesn't make sense. And of course, we'd say, actually, that's right. Actually, without the Holy Spirit, without the hearts that have been changed by the gospel, this kind of love doesn't make sense. So the love he's calling us to is one of, of, of a profound difference to what the love that is described in the world, the love that, that people typically describe when they talk about love in this city. But as you hear this, this expectation of Paul, as you hear him describe this in Colossae, probably the natural question that many of you ask is, well, how on earth is this possible? How on earth uh, do you expect this to happen? And actually, maybe you might say, this is, I don't see this in my own heart. I don't see this in my life. Well, of course, there's always a po- if, you don't, if this is absent from you, there's always a possibility you've got to ask yourself, am I a Christian? You know, particularly, I think, as we go on and we see the other two building blocks, if you don't see any of these in your life, then maybe that should cause you to question whether or not you really have been born again. But it may be that you've just simply missed the key that Paul gives for why these Christians love one another. And I think we'll see it actually at the end in verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Really, what Paul's describing is a sort of shared hope. Actually, the reason that they love one another is because they have a shared hope. The Christian community is not just a good idea that a bunch of random people have come together and said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we all just loved one another? Wouldn't that just enrich our lives and make us happier? No, actually, it's because a fundamental change has taken place in their lives. And actually, that's a change that all of them share. That's not just a shared hope, but also a shared future. Actually, these people are are fellow travelers on the journey towards one day being united with Christ. Actually, these people share probably what we would argue is to be the most fundamental characteristic of your life, your eternal destination, of who you are now that you've been one to Christ. Actually, that we have that in common. And so it's only natural then that that that, uh, shared nature, that shared family, actually starts to transcend everything else. I think once you understand who you are and who the people next to you, right and left, those people are actually your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you understand that, that those people really are your family, that should generate a kind of loyalty to, towards the church, a kind of commitment towards one another. Now, I'm not arguing for the church to be some kind of closed-off holy huddle that only interacts with people who are Christians. Of course, we're called to go and love the world, to love our neighbours, irrespective of, of, of course of beliefs. But it should give us a new solidarity, a new lo- familial loyalty. And it, really, the, 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 the faith that we have transcends any kind of cultural or, or identity that we might give ourselves. Yeah, Colossians chapter 3 says, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all suddenly you realize that when, when you understand that identity and you understand your, that these people are your brothers and sisters, suddenly that love that felt so unnatural actually feels like the most natural thing in the world because these people are your family. So that love is an expectation, is a hallmark of authenticity that Paul expects will be true of your life as the gospel works its way out in your heart. Let me take you to the second hallmark. Second hallmark, knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's will. Paul's hope is that these young Christians would grow in the knowledge of God. This is the first thing he goes on to pray for them as he prays that the gospel would continue to bear fruit in their lives. He says, and so from the day we heard, we heard about your faith, the first thing we started praying for you 
we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. His expectation is that as they increase in the knowledge of God, actually that will be translated in obedience. And then that obedience will translate into further knowledge. Actually, it's a kind of self-perpetuating, virtuous circle, so to speak. As they grow in knowledge, that will translate in obedience and that obedience will translate in greater understanding. So Paul's really saying here that the essential um, precursor to their maturity, the essential building block to their maturity is that these people grow in their knowledge of God's will. Now there are many, I think, who would argue that knowledge is not really essential to your maturity in Christ. I think actually that's probably something of the prevailing assumption in our culture um, and you, but you can see this in a number of ways. You can see this in the way that Christians approach the Bible. Actually, often, often there's a kind of uh, subconscious reluctance towards reading our Bibles. And actually, it's because we've imbibed something of the cultural assumption around knowledge. We live in a, a postmodern culture, which really is, um, questions the value of knowledge, partly because it would say there isn't such a thing as ultimate truth. And so really, any kind of ideas, they might be interesting, but they're not really going to change your life. Knowledge is not life-changing. That's that's really the kind of assumption of our culture. Even though we're in an information age where we're pursuing ideas, I I would argue that there's rare that they would say, this idea, this knowledge, is going to ultimately change your direction, your, your whole purpose and being. And so many people, went, many people outside the church would, would look at the way that Christians approach the Bible and say, how could you think a book could be so transformative to your life? How could you think a book would be so essential to your life? And actually, I think Christians often imbibe that same attitude. You can see this in the way that sometimes the way Christians uh, talk about theology. I, went, I study a theology course one day a week. And, you know, Andrew studied theology before he worked full-time for the church. And Actually, you'd be surprised that sometimes when you're talking to a Christian about theology, they might say, actually, in a way, that's not necessarily going to help you grow in your relationship with God. There's a danger that there might be a kind of assumption that that's actually disconnected from what feels like the most important thing, which is your own personal relationship. Now, in one sense, I'd say absolutely, that's true. If if theology doesn't lead you to worship, then I think, yeah, there's something wrong. But actually, also, that that assumption around theology reveals something of a kind of anti-knowledge bias, almost a kind of assumption that knowledge is not really where it's at in in your Christian maturity. But actually, I want to argue here that really knowledge is essential. Actually, that knowledge is life-changing. Think about this. The knowledge of God's will, the truth of the gospel that came to the Colossians, that changed their life, that led them to believe, that was knowledge. It was truth about who God is. That was the truth that's already changed their lives. So the Colossian Christians can say, actually, the only reason that we've come to believe in God, the only reason that our whole eternal destiny has been changed is because because we have experienced this knowledge. So knowledge has changed their life. And that's why Christians have actually, throughout the ages, been at the center of some of the kind of educational pursuits. Think about the, the thousands of church schools in this country. Think about the way that early Christians used the printing press. And that because... Actually, there's something intrinsic in our faith that we say, actually, no, knowledge is life-changing, particularly or, or essentially the knowledge of God's will. But going forward, too, Paul would say knowledge is essential for spiritual maturity. 
See, knowledge is the antidote to false teaching. What's Paul's response when he hears that there's false teaching in Colossae? He sends them a letter. He sends them knowledge. He's saying, look, I've got a set of truths that I need to tell you to counter some of the lies that you're hearing. If you're hearing, if there are inauthentic, if there are counterfeit gospels circulating, you need to know what the real thing is to be able to respond to the counterfeits. Think about um, 18 years ago when the euro was first um, released on the continent and there were lots of people uh, using these euro, uh, euro new banknotes for the first time. You know, the euro replaced the franc and the lira and all the different European currencies. And at the very first days, I think it was January the 1st, the very first days there were stories that came out that uh, I think a French shopkeeper was, was defrauded by monopoly money because he's so unused to this, um, this currency. Of course, they, they didn't know what the real thing looks like, so then they accept the counterfeit. In order to be able to respond to the counterfeit, you need to know what the real thing is. Actually, I'm convinced that the reason why the church sometimes accepts what we would consider to be false teaching is because we're not um, convinced enough, we're not immersed enough in the truth. Forgive me if I, I bring up a very uh, controversial issue, but um, many of you will know a lady called Vicky Beeching. She um, was a Christian worship leader, and she has written a biography. She's come out as a lesbian in the last couple of few years, and she has written her autobiography. And um, in that autobiography, she uses her own personal story to argue for um, really that Christians should accept same-sex relationships. Not just accept, I mean, but you know, suggest that, that these same-sex relationships are consistent with the Bible, that there's nothing uh, inconsistent about being in an active sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. And she uses really quite, um, I haven't read the book, but read quite detailed um, reviews, and she uses the argument, she says, well, Peter gets told by God that this food that was unclean is now clean, and therefore, to, uh, so too, these, these sexual practices, which were unclean, are now clean. And, and I think, as I say, I haven't read the book, but my, my, my perception of that argument is it's very weak. Actually, it really doesn't take account of the fact that the New Testament is full of a new holiness code. That actually the direction is not, um, now that Jesus has come, no longer do you um, seek to live holy lives. Quite the opposite. Actually, that Jesus puts a greater requirement on your life than the Old Testament law ever did. But actually, I went on uh, Amazon uh, and looked at, at the reviews of this book, and I saw countless reviews by Christians who'd read this book and said, yeah, I'm I'm convinced. I'm convinced by our arguments. Just numerous, uh, almost 200. And I thought, how have people been brought into this argument? And of course, it's very powerful when you argue from from your own personal experience. But I'm also convinced that we very easily give in to some of these arguments because we're not rooted in Scripture. We're not able to counter really what's ultimately false teaching with with the Word of God. So it's absolutely essential that Christians immerse themselves in this knowledge because it shapes our understanding of who God is and it enables us to recognize when someone is promoting something counterfeit. But of course, the knowledge that Paul is describing here is actually knowledge that leads to obedience. You see, in verse 10, he says, "Um, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord." The reason why Paul wants them to have this knowledge is not abstract theology. There's just some kind of obscure idea over there. He wants this knowledge to change their lives. I think really it's, the analogy would be um, 
if you sent an army into battle, but you didn't give them any instructions, you didn't give them any sense of what the strategy is, how could you expect an army to fight if the army didn't know the directions? Think about the frustration you feel when your fa- uh, phone has run out of battery and you can't get somewhere because you don't know how to get there because you're relying on Google Maps. It's that sense of almost you need to know the direction in order to be able to get to your destination. And when you don't know the, the instructions, you don't know um, the description, the, the, the vision of, of how to get there, really what he's talking about, the knowledge of God's will, it's impossible. And so there's an, an essentialness to our, to the need, there's, there's, a, there's a deep need for this knowledge of God's will. But also, I think I would argue that this knowledge is not um, a kind of uh, impersonal knowledge. Actually, this knowledge is relational. It's not simply a dry exercise in understanding what is God's will in the abstract. Actually, this is the work of God revealing his truth to your heart. Actually, this is a relational uh, impartation of knowledge. In verse 9, he's praying that God would fill you with this knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's asking that God would be the one who imparts this knowledge to you. That's why when we read the Bible, it's not just a, a, an exercise in, in English comprehension. Actually, this is an exercise in asking God to speak to our hearts, to reveal the truth about himself to us. That's why we prayerfully meditate on Scripture, saying, God, would you teach me? Would you open my eyes? So this is both knowledge that we need, but it's also relational knowledge. It's knowledge that God reveals to us. So that's the second hallmark, knowledge of God's will. And I think we can see that's essential. But let me talk you through the third hallmark very quickly. Obedience, obedience. This is the third hallmark, obedience. The third pillar, the third essential that Paul envisages in the lives of these Colossian Christians, is that they would be obedient to Christ. As they believe in Christ, as the gospel works in their hearts, that would naturally outflow to an obedience to God. You can see it in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in Him, bearing fruit, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. What does he mean by that? Well, first, he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's really describing a kind of personal holiness, an obedience to God. The, really, it changes the way, the how, the how, if, for want of a better word. It changes your lifestyle, the way you do things, the way you relate to others. You can get a short description in Colossians chapter 3. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience. So you can see it's changing the way you relate to others. But it's also um, an aversion, a rejection of sin. You can see a, a purity. You can see this um, again in Colossians. It said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So it's, it's both a, a personal holiness, a personal purity, but it's also a, re- um, a rejection of sin. And that's, that's clearly there in this definition of obedience. But I also think, as well as being a kind of um, inward holiness, an inward obedience, there's also an outward focus that Paul has in mind here. See, obedience cannot just be considered kind of personal sin avoidance. Actually, obedience involves good works. Actually, obedience involves not just the how of your life, but it also involves the what. Actually, as, you, as the gospel see, uh, starts to penetrate your heart, 
as you're changed, as you're born again. Actually, you, your life, what your life is about, what you're prioritizing should be changed. Actually, obedience means being obedient to Christ's purposes in your life. Actually, I think this is something of a blind spot for, for urban Londoners. When we think about obedience, we typically think about our own lives because we're quite individualistic. So we think, you know, obedience basically involves purity, involves the way we, maybe the way we might relate to people. But it's, it's quite inward. Rather than actually thinking, obedience means being obedient to God's purposes in the world. We need an outward-focused understanding of obedience. It means orientating your life around Christ's purposes, whether that be loving your neighbor, making disciples, serving the poor. It doesn't mean everyone should be full-time Christian ministers, of course, but it does mean we should be using our lives for Christ's purposes on this earth. So really the question, as you, as you hear Paul's expectation of obedience, is how is your life furthering the Great Commission? could look like speaking with your colleagues, could look like praying for their salvation, could look like opportunities to love your neighbor. But I think Paul has this expectation of good works, that our lives will be marked by an obedience that doesn't just affect us, but affects the world around us. Otherwise, we're just kind of some kind of holy huddle. Actually, this obedience starts to change the world. Now, actually, I think many of us, when we hear this call to obedience, are not particularly enthusiastic Many of us have adopted something of an obedience light version of faith. Think about, I think often this stems from just the way that our culture rejects the, any kind of idea of authority or obedience. We live in a culture that's embraced something what sociologists would call authentic individualism. Really what it says is, I need to express myself, you do you. you know, really, that I must have maximum freedom to be who I am. That any kind of external constraint is something of an, an anathema to me. That that's not best for my life. So any kind of idea of obedience to an external influence, which of course this assumes, can't be attractive. And I think you see this in the way we talk about it in church. Actually, you don't see Christians running obedience conferences. You don't see Christians getting excited about obedience. Yes, love. I think many Christians will get very excited about God's love and the love that we have for the saints. Knowledge, I think there are, you know, Christians will get somewhat excited. But obedience, I don't think really resonates with many in 21st century London. And actually, we can even see this in the way we describe our faith. A very popular way of describing Christianity is that we'd say it's a relationship and it's not religion. And I think that's something of a reaction to the way that previous generations of Christians have perhaps been very legalistic, perhaps focused on very specific taboos, which have said, if you're a Christian, it means this. It means not drinking or you know, whatever else, these kind of outward-focused signs of obedience. And in some senses, there is some truth to that answer, that of course, Christianity is a relationship with God. Of course, God desires relationship with all people. That's why he was willing to come and die on the cross but it, the danger of that definition is it underemphasizes the, 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 really the New Testament expectation that we'll be obedient to his commands. Actually, as you go through the New Testament, you'll see it's chuck full of commands. Jesus calls people to come and follow him, to come and die. The whole idea of disciple literally means follower. And the idea of a follower, the picture that you need to have in your mind when you hear that word, is of guys who are literally like following the rabbi, who were with him day by day, and observing his life and seeking to imitate him. So really implicit within the Christian life is obedience. I think much of this comes down to a misunderstanding of grace. 
Sometimes Christians will say, well, because of grace, because of the unconditional mercy of the Lord, there's really no need for obedience. God doesn't require our obedience. You know, maybe you might call someone to, you might challenge someone. You might say, look, you need to change the way you're living. Some might say, well, really, is that much grace? Is that, appro- is that, is that much grace? You know, think, is challenging someone really walking in the way of grace? Actually, of course, it would be wrong to lose sight of grace. It would be wrong to start approaching God on the basis of our performance rather than on his unconditional mercy. But, it, but equally, I think it really that's a wrong understanding of grace. That's a wrong outworking of grace. Actually, when you understand grace, it has the opposite effect. Obedience is the natural outworking of this understanding of God's mercy. Because grace tells you that you have been freed from the dominion of darkness. That you actually, it tells you that you're no longer um, controlled by the power of sin. That actually, it tells you that you are fundamentally a new person. That you've been born again. As you see this in the in the uh, passage in Colossians that we're looking at. He says, "He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." He's saying, actually, that's not who you are anymore. You're no longer controlled by the power of sin. A fundamental change has taken place in your life. You've died to your old life. You've been resurrected with Christ. That word redemption means literally uh, you would redeem a slave in Roman times. You might, you'd buy that slave out of captivity. So Christians have experienced a redemption from captivity. We're no longer controlled by the power of sin. So grace tells you you're in a different place. So actually, that's not who you are, and therefore you don't need to be controlled by it. And actually, grace should work out obedience in your life. Of course, we'll still sin. But actually, the grace of God should call us to a new obedience. It should call us to a new changed life. Because that is the only right response to the grace of God. That's always the pattern of Paul's teaching. Indicative, telling you that you have been saved. Telling you what God has done in your life. And then an imperative, an instruction to go and uh, respond to that grace by changing your life. So obedience actually is a family trait. Obedience is part of your DNA now. It may feel very hard to believe that. Uh, this guy, PJ Smythe, came to this church a few, um, a couple of months ago. And um, I, I was listening to a talk he gave. He was talking about parenting. And he, he gave an instruction to his sons. He was trying to encourage them to be really warm and loving when people come into their home. And he said, Smythe boys aren't shy. Smythe boys aren't shy. What he's saying is, look, actually, it's not in our character. It's not in our nature. That's not the way we do things in this family. Actually, that's not who we are. And that's similar to what I'm saying to you, actually, that because of God's grace, you've been one to Christ. You've been born again. Actually, you have a new nature. And so obedience actually is part of who you are. Obedience is a natural outworking of the gospel in your life. So then I want to just draw this all together and say, I want to say that I've drawn to you three really essential pillars of maturity. Actually, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, the gospel naturally should work these three things out in your life. Now, of course, there's an instruction here. Of course, there's a a response to be made. It's not that we passively allow this, but we're saying actually, if you're a Christian, your life should be marked by this kind of obedience. If you're a Christian, you should learn to love your brothers and sisters. If you're, a, if you're a Christian, your life should be marked by a new knowledge, a new desire to understand the will of God as revealed in his scripture and, of course, the other ways that he speaks to us and leads us in his will. 
I want you to think of these things really as a three-legged stool. That you can't have one, you can't have two without one of them. You can't have knowledge and obedience, but no love. You become a kind of clanging symbol, become a kind of fusty, unattractive version of Christ-likeness. You can't have love and obedience, but no knowledge, because your obedience is really not authentic obedience. It's not grounded in the reality of what God is calling us to. Your faith becomes superficial. It's almost like you can't, it doesn't engage with all the parts of your life. It doesn't engage with the questions that you're asking if you've shunned knowledge. And you can't have love and knowledge, but no obedience. You might have a good experience. You might have a, a wonderful experience in worship. But if you don't have obedience, then I think your, your discipleship is, is, is so muted. It's so, it's so partial as to be not real at all. Now, as we close, I want you to remember, I want to remind you that actually this This work that Paul's describing is actually God's work in the Christian's life. The agent of change that Paul is describing is not ourselves primarily. Paul is praying for these Christians. He's praying because he's saying, actually, I'm asking God that he would be the one who would do this work in your lives. This idea of bearing fruit is not one that depends on us. Of course, we hear the commands implicit in what I'm saying. Of course, we want to resolutely choose to surrender our lives, to say, God, will you have your way in our lives? But we must remember that the primary agent in this, the one who is doing the work, who is is ensuring that the gospel bears fruit in our lives, is God himself. Think about John 15. I want to close with reading you some of this. He said, abide in me and I in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to hear in all of this. We need to hear as much as we hear the challenge to change our lives, to respond and say, look, I don't see love. Actually, I need to start loving my brothers and sisters. We need to hear that God is the one who is doing this work in us. He is the one who is leading the fruit to be born in our lives. Why do you stand? I'm going to pray. Lord, we we want to thank you, Lord. As As we hear Paul's prayer, that you are the one who will grow this kind of maturity in our lives. That you are the one who who calls us out of our old patterns, our old ways, and calls us to live this new life. Life characterized by obedience. A life characterized by love for one another. A life characterized by a new love of your truth. Lord, we want to live this new life of maturity, but we know we cannot do it by ourselves. We know it's only a result of the work of your gospel penetrating our hearts. We know it's a result of, you, of your Spirit's work in our lives, Lord. So we want to welcome your work amongst us, Lord. We want to say, come and have your way amongst us, Lord. Come and bring us to the kind of maturity that you describe in your word in this passage. Would you lead us to be the people that you've called us to be? Would you lead us to be a people of your very own possession, eager to do what is good by your grace? Amen.